नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑलराइट सो ऑन इफ आई रिमेंबर द डेट करेक्टली या इट वाज फरवरी 24 2022 वाज द डेट व्हेन रशिया लॉन्च्ड अ फुल स्केल इनवेजन ऑन यूक्रेन एंड फॉर द वंस हु डोंट नो आई थिंक द रूसो रशियन कॉन्फ्लिक्ट हैज बीन गोइंग ऑन इफ माय मेमोरी सर्व्स मी करेक्टली फ्रॉम 2014 सो आई थॉट इट्स बीन मोर देन अ ईयर सिंस द ऑफिशियल इनवेजन ऑफ यूक्रेन so to talk about it uh, i reached out to valina valina is a geopolitical expert and she has more than 20 years of experience and she's been on the podcast before too so valina thanks for coming and welcome thank you for the invitation kushal it's great to be back uh, we have so much to unpack so l- let's start over here so now w- what we can officially say it's been more than 15 months where are we at uh, if i if i was to give you the 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 most simplistic version who won who lost what's going on yeah uh, so first you rightly pointed out the full scale invasion began on the 24th of february last year before that we had already military operation uh, really highly complex uh, one facilitated and instrumentalized by russia and uh, its operation was ongoing since the last 8 uh, years uh, in the eastern parts of uh, ukraine uh, in uh, let's say around one third of uh, the territories of Donbas and Luhansk just to give you a perspective uh currently uh there is um around 90% being uh controlled uh by Russia of Luhansk around 50% of Donetsk and then we move also to the south and have also Russian control of uh, further two uh, territories not to the fullest but f- further two territories uh, which are Zaporizhia and Kherson in Zaporizhia we have also the largest nuclear plant which is under Russian uh, Uh, control but uh, of course here we have the risk of also let's say a uh, nuclear explosion in the case of uh, ongoing uh, you know fights on the battlefield uh, so all you know around 17% 17% of the territory of ukraine is currently under russian control but the war is uh, also currently in a static let's say a static uh, mode and uh, we are awaiting uh, the ukrainian counteroffensive why are we are awaiting it because um, well weather was really really bad and has been bad for the last uh, several weeks and we know for a fact uh, so long as it is raining and so long as you have like this really really uh, bad conditions on the ground on the battlefields uh, ukraine cannot start uh, the counteroffensive uh, why is this counteroffensive being awaited by both russia and of course uh, by the ukrainian population by ukrainian government is that it will of course uh, uh, precede let's say uh, probably the first rounds of talks of real official talks uh between uh, ukraine and russia uh the window of uh, opportunity will be uh, in the next uh, let's say 3 to 6 months because starting with uh, november um there will be a very very big political pressure from outside specifically uh from the united states but also in general from the west uh for uh, let's say uh for an avenue of political dialogue uh, united states will enter political campaign for presidential elections russia will also enter uh, such uh, election uh, campaign uh the presidential election 
is set for the 17th of March next year. And Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is uh, uh, obviously uh, eager to run uh, as a presidential candidate. And then we have also presidential election for the European Parliament uh, in 2024, which means also that a lot of, uh, you know, uh, governments uh, here in the West are still in this kind of political, let's say, uh, political turbulence uh, with uh, certain realities uh, happening also on the ground when it comes to uh, populist movements, uh, right-wing, uh, left-wing uh, uh, candidates, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, that's why three to six months uh, window of opportunity for Ukraine to create facts on the ground, to achieve military uh, victories, and to push then for, like I said, a better outcome um, at the negotiation table. Now, if you ask, because this is your question, and this is final remark on my side, of course, from Russia's perspective, 17% of, uh, you know, of uh, the control, you know, on uh, the Ukrainian territory is not the maximum goal, but it's obviously more than it has controlled, you know, before 24th of February. Um, the legitimization of Crimea as Russian is an absolute must. So that means that any negotiations uh, will, of course, include this condition by Russia. From Ukrainian point of view, um, uh, practically regaining the territorial integrity in the borders from 1991 uh, is the absolute must. That means the maximum goal would include all of the territory. So we are somewhere in the limbo, right? In military terms, in diplomatic terms, in political terms. And right now, I think that these three to six months will be very much decisive uh, for the next uh, phase, in which direction we go. Are we going into the direction where Ukraine can really uh, decide uh, at least uh, partial uh, military victories for itself due to the success of the counteroffensive, and then translate that into political, let's say, victory, at least for this moment? Or are we going in the direction that Russia would be able to stabilize the front lines, you know, through amassing more and more uh, troops. Uh, it is currently in a mass mobilization cycle. Uh, and then through, uh, let's say, um, successive, successive, uh, successful defense uh, strategy would be able to push uh, practically uh, this, uh, you know, to push uh, away this, um, uh, this counteroffensive. A lot of question marks. In fact, more question marks than answers for the moment. Yeah, and, and what I find particularly, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, frustrating for a person like me, look, I'm not a geopolitical expert, I don't claim to be one, which is why I call people like you to explain things and, and people from different points of view, is that everybody has their own version in this. There is the Russian version, then the, and it's not like the European version and the American version are the same either. When I say America, I mean the North American version, primarily being the United States of America and Canada together. And then we have the Ukrainian version. So I'll give you a small example. If I was to uh, ask this kind of a question, even when we are trying to assess the claims of deaths of, of you know, everybody's star, every side makes kill claims, as they call it in, in this parlance. So Ukrainians will claim that you know, they, they have shot X number of missiles down 
and it never seems to be consistent with the numbers of missiles that seem to hit their targets. The Russians seem to claim they have hit almost unbelievable number of targets that they never miss anything. Nothing ever goes wrong with the Russian claim. What's exactly happening? Like, it's how does one assess? Well, of course, uh, military intelligence knows uh, for a fact what is going on on the ground. Uh, then, of uh, it depends also on what military intelligence is sharing with, uh, let's say, other military intelligence uh, services. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, those that are in, uh, you know, partnering countries. Here, I. I would argue that Russia is uh, very cautious. Uh, I've been following uh, Russian wars uh, since uh, the 90s, and uh, there has been always this kind of uh, approach that uh, no numbers are being revealed, no numbers. Mm -hmm. Starting with the Chechen wars, you could not get any information, even if you are a journalist or an analyst, you know, covering uh, the war. You will get no information. You will practically will look for any kind of piece of information and then you will just, you know, add numbers of casualties or of uh, injured, uh, number of uh, explosions and, uh, you know, prisoners of war and so on and so forth. This hasn't changed much. And uh, uh, it makes a you know, a perfect sense if you think about the folk of war, because you don't want to put yourself in a, you know, in a disadvantageous position. You don't want to, you know, reveal numbers, uh, numbers of strength, but also numbers of weakness that goes in both directions. When it comes to Ukraine, I would argue it's the same thing. Even I would, I would uh, be uh, surprised if Ukraine military intelligence is sharing all the information. We've seen also from the leaked Pentagon documents that there are actually, you know, efforts to, uh, well, to take a look at what uh, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian troops uh, are doing on the ground, what are the numbers of ammunition, of military equipment, and so on and so forth. And that is also understandable because it is a folk of war. And right now, every piece of information can actually, um, well, provide you with an advantage versus your uh, versus your enemy or actually put you in a disadvantaged position. And we've seen this, uh, by the way, also from the last counteroffensive of the Ukrainian troops, where, uh, in fact, they managed actually through a disinformation campaign to lure, uh, you know, the enemy into the wrong uh, direction and then actually uh, launched a real counteroffensive in a different, uh, you know, in a different direction. So they started with Kharkiv, but then actually the real thing was, uh, you know, the counteroffensive in Kherson, in the Kherson region, where in, uh, well, in the end, uh, around 30,000 uh, uh, Russian troops had to, uh, you know, cross uh, uh, over and uh, run away from, you know, their positions. So in a sense, what I'm trying to say is that we will make sense of numbers uh, once, you know, the war is over. We will be uh, dealing with this, uh, you know, kind of uh, folk of, uh, of, of war for the whole of the period. We've seen a lot of uh, contradictional uh, actually, analysis, and uh, this is this is this is unfortunately always the case. This is not uh, currently a kind of uh, exception. This has been happening with other military operations, with with other military conflicts uh, everywhere uh, everywhere else. But I would argue that this probably is the war that has been most reported 
certainly most reported and has, of course, also uh, probably the largest, um, let's say, um, implications uh, in general, because it really considers not only the continent, the old continent, the European continent, it really has ramifications um, for the rest of the world um, in geoeconomic terms, when it comes to, you know, commodities, when it comes to dependencies, when it comes to uh, prices and so on and so forth. So this, of course, makes it also uh, more interesting. I would I would uh, I would say um, for a lot of observers around the world, and not to forget, in the end, it is also because of China, because China is for probably the very first time in its you know let's say last 20-25 years of international policy poli politics when uh, Beijing's stance has been continuously. Um, let's say improving and growing. I mean, improving is probably not the right word in terms of, in qualitative terms, but from you know Chinese point of view, it has been growing the portfolio, the diplomatic portfolio. And right now, this is probably the peak from China's point of view. And China is not neutral in this war, so China has a very very clear stance. And this, I think, makes really uh, the uh, you know the 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 covering of this war different from others, you know, from other military conflicts, from other, um, um, let's say, uh, military tensions, uh, because of the scale. Uh, and uh, final point, uh, yes, we've seen also that uh, there is a huge difference right now, contrary to previous wars, when it comes to the open source information, because we have a lot of open source information companies uh, analysts and so on, working with, you know, the raw material, providing raw material on a daily basis. Uh, not all of this material, not all of this information can be verified, and yet it creates a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, exposure. We understand a lot thanks to this uh, really uh, live coverage of the war that I think is unprecedented. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, the first books are already appearing. That tells you a lot. I mean, in the middle of the war, we are already actually having the first books on the war. And uh, yes, and in a sense, um, we have seen, for instance, just to give you an example with the leaked Pentagon documents, that a lot of the data by this open source information, uh, you know, companies, uh, firms, analysts is actually has been actually verified by by the leaked documents. So in a sense, uh, I would guess uh, uh, the, the truth is somewhere in between. You have to be very cautious when it comes to reporting. Um, uh, by the way, it's uh, the same goes for the mass media. They are also struggling to catch up and to, you know, provide um, to provide uh, material um, on spot. Uh, but at the very same time, you have to just verify and you really have to take a look at from, from all possible angles. And that goes back to the previous question. You have to really take a look at every, every uh, country's perspective. You cannot cover the war uh, by just relying on, let's say, the Western perspective, the European one or the American one. You have to take a look at what, you know, what is China's stance, what is, you know, uh, what are other partners of uh, Russia actually thinking about the war. Uh, take the example of, uh, you know, the visit of the Brazilian president uh, to China. Um, take, a, take, take the example of, uh, you know, African leaders making statements. That is the, that is the way forward. You just have to really 
uh, refer to all of uh, all of uh, the informations coming from third parties uh, as well. Now, on this entire coverage bit, I actually do agree with you that the Chinese coverage has a slant, but I think everybody's coverage has a slant in the, in that sense. Like, till the extent that uh, when when this conflict started officially a year or so ago uh, with the Russian invasion. In fact, one of the most uh, <clears throat> glaring things that I could observe, uh, even in the coverage in the Western media, for that example, I mean, I don't care. I mean, I can take names here. I mean, whether it was uh, CNN or any, I'm just using CNN as an example here. Um it, it's, it's unbelievable the kind of rhetoric that was coming and, and the, not just the rhetoric, the moral preaching that comes along with it and 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 some sort of a moral panic too at times where uh, there were news of uh, the level of rhetoric was so high. I remember a gentleman, I think he was a Russian origin American. Uh, he had a restaurant in, in, in the United States of America. The, the poor guy had to remove Russia from his restaurant name. He literally had to scrape it out because the level of propaganda in Western art. I'm not saying they're the only ones who do it. Believe me, everybody is doing it. Which is why people like me who literally don't understand which side of the aisle I'm supposed to look at, I, I find it. Or in Canada, there was a Russian pianist who had gone there and he was not allowed to perform. Or uh, a, a tennis player that I like a lot, uh, uh, he's one of the top five tennis players from Russia in the world. And he was not allowed to participate in Wimbledon. So so it's not like, so how am I supposed to like, take the Western coverage either. And why I'll tell you, uh, am I coming at this is uh, Ambassador Sybil, as I was telling to you offline, wrote this piece recently where he was basically taking the mickey out of the Indian media, saying that the Indian media has no representative in, in the war zone, in the conflict zone. They just take reports that are culled and presented from the West and they cut, copy, paste it and put it on the on the Indian news front as if that's the real reportage. So what do you make of this entire thing? Well, it's becoming increasingly dangerous for war journalists as we used to know them for the from the last 30 years, going to the battlefields, reporting uh, on the ground to actually cover the stories. Uh, we've lost uh, uh, several, actually, war journalists uh, covering this war. And as in every war, unfortunately, the, the tragic part is that they have skin in the game uh, by covering, actually, the, the battlefields. Uh, and... Uh, it is uh, simply too dangerous uh, to send uh, journalists and, and to some extent irresponsible to send journalists on the ground, uh, especially when it comes, you know, to uh, to fighting that uh, very much uh, reminds us of uh, the even of the first uh, conditions from the first world war. I mean, just Google, uh, take a look at, uh, you know, YouTube uh, documentaries, scenes from the First World War, the trenches from the First World War to just get an idea what is really going on and how it is being fighted. So uh, that, of course, um, makes the job, the task of journalists, uh, and here, I've, of course, I mean uh, work journalists, very, very difficult. And at the same time, yes, uh, if you take a look at uh, the media coverage, you will find out that there is a lot of uh, recycling of, uh, you know, one and the same story. So it's a lot about storytelling with a, a, pre a carefully prepared narrative uh, uh, rather than, uh, you know, uh, ref 
reflection of reality, uh, trying to really present a piece of reality the way it is and not the way how the author wants us to, to think about it. And I think this is the major problem that you will find in every country, whether it is in India or it is, you know, in a European state or in United States right now. I mean, by the way, United States is uh, not, uh, um, I mean, if you take a look at uh, what is going on right now uh, on the ground uh, where the preparations for the election campaign are already running, you will find out that uh, there are a lot of uh, d different uh, opinions and different views on the war and that uh, specifically the republicans are not uh, not necessarily uh, you know the core with uh, what biden's administration was doing in terms of financial aid in terms of military aid uh, so here once again depending on which american channels you are watching you will find very different you, you will see a very different uh, perspective and you will uh, actually hear a very different narrative. So I argue that, of course, media, media coverage is a lot about creating narratives and then, uh, you know, carefully preparing stories and then disseminating the stories. And it has a, um, a less to do with uh, really uh, presenting the facts on the ground. But that same goes for China, countries such as China and Russia. You will not, uh, once again, uh, I have to stress uh, that uh, you will not uh, really, um, uh, let's say, uh, see and uh, hear the, 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 the real version of, you know, of, uh, of the developments or of the events. So in a, uh, once again, it is very, very difficult, uh, specifically when it comes to uh, closed systems, such as uh, the one of China and Russia, uh, to uh, report on the ground. Uh, in Russia, just to give you one example, if you go on the streets or if you make public statements that this is a war and not a special military operation because the public uh, narrative uh, the the you know the narrative by uh, by by Russia is that this is a special military operation now go on the streets and try to say that or let's say use a media platform to say that you could actually face up to 14 years 14 years jail Whoa. just for questioning for questioning the narrative that is cool. that this is actually not a, a special military operation not to speak of china where of course we know uh, uh, how china reacts uh, to to certain issues um, specifically for instance when it comes to minority minorities uh, rights and so on um, we don't have a general story here we don't have a general formula. This is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I uh, myself actually take a look at all possible channels uh, and try to, uh, you know, compare and, uh, um, well, uh, let's say, um, verify the information. I, tr I, I take a look at Russian channels. I take a look at the uh, disinformation channels on Telegram. I take a look at, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Ukrainian uh, media coverage. Then I take a look in original, of course. I take a look at a lot of, uh, you know, different languages. So I use different languages and I compare as well. And then, of course, uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, our own uh, channels of uh, information exchange where I can also listen to other experts and colleagues, how they view things. Like 
if there is a call between Xi Jinping and uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky, you, you will find uh, 10 different uh, versions, like 10 different um, readings of this call. And this is also important. So in the end, you there is no general formula and you will not have uh, one. And it is up to the you know, to the people, how they will perceive based on their, you know, uh, level of preparedness, level of uh, information, level of how deep they can go into the, you know, into the stuff, uh, how they will, uh, you know, work with this information. But to expect from us media to give you uh, information that actually is already distilled into uh, into analysis, into a serious analysis, is, uh, I think... Uh, uh, it's, I, I think, not serious. I mean, it's not realistic. Yeah, I'll just make one comment. For me, the most hilarious bit in the entire American media landscape was uh, the the change at the political level where during the Obama administration, it was the Republicans who were like, we should be soft on Russia. And then suddenly everything has changed. So like the, the Biden administration is super hard on Russia and the Republican side. You, you have Fox News. I remember Tucker Carlson. Now he's no longer with Fox News. Tucker's going like, why are we doing this? What has this got to do with us? I don't understand American uh, American. I mean, they, you know, it's like the flavor of the season for Americans. Uh, they they take a rose petal. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. And then whatever is left in the end. They go by their interest, but it doesn't mean that the Russians don't do it. I think the Russians do it. And and like you, I think you're right. I mean, they do it far worse, but uh, it, it is what is it. I may not find a lot of lovers in the Indian side for saying that the Russians do it far worse, but uh, oh, oh, well, who cares? Uh, it, it, it's just my personal opinion. I I, I never really bothered about uh, you know people liking me. And I, I, I don't understand the whole propaganda wars is what I'm trying to say, but there is also one side that nobody talks about it. That is the problem of Nazism in, in Ukraine in that sense, you know, uh, whether it's a glorification of uh, Bandera, the the mob justice met it out to Russian uh, civilians. We've seen videos of, you know, some Russians being tied naked in the cold. And again, when it is done, oh, this is Russian state media propaganda. Like, why... My question, Lena, is can we have an empathetic, like we can empathize with average people without tarnishing everything as Russian propaganda, right? We could do that. I mean, I, I remember in 2017, 2016, 2018, the same New York Times would write articles about Nazism being a problem and corruption being a problem in Ukraine. I mean, not that I'm a fan of Candace Owens, another right-wing commentator in America. The funniest bit was when the New York Times reached out to her because she was suddenly pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine. And somebody asked her, what is, what is your source? It was the New York Times writing to her. And lo and behold, she quoted the New York Times and said, this is my source because I read you guys. So so how do we make this? Like, Can we not empathize with average Russians too and criticize this? Now, this, these are many, many questions. And none of these questions actually refers to my expertise as a geopolitical uh, expert. So I will make it very, very short because <laughs> I uh, usually do not uh, give uh, answers, uh, you know, that are not derived from my expertise. I can give you my opinions if you like, but this will be just my personal opinions that I don't think that the audience will be so eager to, you know, uh, listen to because they are really real experts covering actually far-right uh, movements, right-wing far-right movements in Europe, not only in Ukraine. We have a huge far-right right-wing movement in whole of Europe. And actually not only in Europe, right? Uh, 
it's a world phenomenon. It hasn't ceased to exist uh, actually since the Second uh, World War. And uh, um, these experts have done an amazing job. Uh, they have uh, really studied uh, the structure, the content, the, the way how they have actually been functioning, the propaganda material, the networks. A lot of these things uh, are interconnected. And uh, there is a really uh, long history going back to uh, many decades that points also to a strong interest on behalf of Russia to uh, fund and promote these uh, far-right, uh, right-wing uh, movements, parties uh, in Europe for an obvious reason. Because from time to time, when there is a crisis and Europe has a lot of them, uh, movements uh, like this uh, are actually uh, gaining, uh, uh, gaining, you know, political importance. They are being, let's say, elected into par parliaments, and then you have a vehicle for political influence. And practically, you have someone, a player, a stakeholder uh, that you can control, and then you can steer political processes because we are democracies. We are like an open box of uh, chocolates. And you can pick chocolates. And when this chocolate is no longer, you know, tasty, uh, you can also pick other uh, chocolates. Like you can actually pick also left-wing movements and then work with them as well. Uh, what is the difference with the uh, right-wing, uh, you know, and the left-wing? Well, left-wing uh, are actually uh, strongly, pro uh, you know, anti-American. So you work on the strong anti-American sentiment. And uh, the, the the right wing, they are very nationalistic uh, or nationalistically oriented. Then you work on their fears because of migration, how you know Europe will be swept by migrants coming from all over the world. Uh, 450 million aging population uh, on this old continent, they will not make it into this century without uh, really without migration. This is the reality that no politician will tell you because they cannot uh, win uh, elections by telling you the simple truth. And that is that Europe needs a lot of migrants, a lot of migrants from everywhere in the world. And like smart powers have been doing this, whether this is United States or Canada or Australia, you see that this is actually working. Uh, and this gives you a leverage, a demographic leverage that Europe doesn't have. Because in the next 10 to 20 years, all the boomers will be retired. You, we are having already labor uh, shortages and we cannot cover for them. So you can imagine what will be uh, in like 10 to 15 years, not to speak of the famous welfare system here in Europe that means retirement, social, healthcare, and so on and so forth, that once again needs to be covered because you don't have the babies and you don't have actually the, you know, the people who will be in charge for, let's say, uh, one baby who should be in charge for like three to four uh, retired persons. So going back to the story, you, you understand that it's uh, much easier to operate on the ground of a democratic system. You can actually uh, launch uh, NGOs, you can buy interest groups, you can, uh, you can actually invest into uh, interest groups that are propagating certain campaign. Like, for instance, on, uh, on, on uh, the side of the left wing, uh, um, I would even say uh, partially Marxist-oriented you know, groups, you 
can start investing into uh, these groups that are strongly, you know, in favor of climate change, you know, fighting the climate change, right? So going against fossil fuels, the industrializing, uh, speeding up the process of, uh, you know, energy transition, so on and so forth. So yeah, I have a leverage. And as I said, uh, you can also work with the nationalistic uh, sentiments of many, many, you know, people who are afraid of uh, different, uh, you know, opinions, uh, migrants, as I said, every time when you use this. And do not forget that before this war began, we had an instrumentalized, perfectly instrumentalized migration crisis at the borders of Poland and the Baltics with the help of Belarus. They tested the ground. It worked perfectly. And you, you have, you know, what do you have actually in Poland? You, in Poland, you have a, you know, strongly nationalistically oriented uh, government. They saw actually how they can uh, channel the migrants from countries like Syria, like Afghanistan. You cannot really seriously expect that country like Belarus will have the networks on the ground to facilitate the movement of migrants from countries like Syria or Afghanistan without Russian help, because we know for a fact that. You know, Russia is militarily present in Syria, has been actually on the ground since 2015. And at the very same time, it has closely coordinating with China uh, on the ground in Afghanistan prior to the withdrawal of the U.S. troops. Already six to nine months before that, even though that the Taliban are on the list of, uh, of uh, on the Russian list uh, as a terrorist organization, uh, they have been talking to them and coordinating with them. So going back to your question. Yeah, does Ukraine have a Nazi problem? By no means a Nazi problem that has any significant political meaning. So that means uh, Ukraine, as every other European state, and that means also Russia, and that means every other European state has a problem with far right or right wing uh, movements that can, from time to time, become also a political factor. And just as we speak, just as we speak in my country, in Austria, we have a huge right-wing problem, huge one. In the largest province, there has been a local election in the largest province in, uh, in the federal state of Austria. You know, Austria is a federal republic. Uh, they won 12% more as compared to the last time. Uh, now there has been a second uh, local election in another province. Once again, they won by 8% more. By the way, the Communist Party won another, like they gained uh, around 20% more. Like they, 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 they gained 12, uh, 30%. They entered the local government for the very first time since 1947, since the end of the Second World War. So you see that things are much more nuanced. And uh, here, uh, this party, why is it important and why am I giving you this example? Because this party has actually signed a contract with Russia years ago. And this is something that is being debated again and again in the Austrian parliament, that the only party that is in the, Fed, you know, is in uh, the Austrian par parliament is right now in the opposition. And probably the next time when there is election here in Austria has big chances to even become party number one or even, uh, you know, elect the, uh, the next uh, chancellor here in Austria. So you understand that this is a leverage uh, and things are very, very nuanced. So uh, maybe I will finish here by telling you that um, you need to uh, 
to understand that these are um, specifically the Eastern European countries. They haven't had any chance to emancipate as nation states. Going from, you know, Second World War and then becoming part of a, of a big, you know, of a big uh, union, Warsaw Bloc, and then uh, some of them also uh, being part of the Soviet Union, they have never had the chance to emancipate and to actually work on these things. And then, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union happened. Did you think that uh, 30 years is anything in the history of a nation? I mean, take the example of India. Since 1947, this is a gradual process of a nation building, of a proud nation building in which, you know, rediscovering and re-emerging. You know, India is now uh, on the rise, like many experts are saying right now. India is re-emerging as a power in the global arena. So here I argue that this, is, this will be a process. It will take time. And once again, it will very much depend on the outcome. But it is the Russian president who actually led to the birth of the Ukrainian nation, of the Ukrainian identity uh, not based on a far-right ideology, based on a national ideology to differentiate yourself from someone else. And that means, of course, to have an opposite, which is Russia, and to be the opposite of, it, uh, of, 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 of Russia, which is now Ukraine. Fair enough. Now I want to touch upon uh, your essay in the Observer Research Foundation uh, from March 2nd, 2023, where you talk about uh, Europe on the verge. So how do you think Europe handles this? So I want to quote uh, the beginning paragraph where you say, as Europe continues to grapple with Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine, the prospect of devastating cascading effects looms on the horizon. Western military experts assess that Moscow's multifaceted approach encompasses three distinct yet interconnected dimensions, a military aggression against Ukraine, a war against Western values, norms and standards, and non-kinetic war targeting the European economy through the weaponization of commodities. Now, I want to... Uh, I think we have kind of dealt with one and two. Let's focus on number three. How long do you think uh, Europe... I have, and when I say Europe, I specifically want to focus on Western Europe. Uh, how long can they sustain this... Uh, thing and would they not be interested in pushing Ukraine to get on the table to negotiate with the Russians? Because at the end of the day, the one one part of the world that has had a disproportionate economic impact because of this conflict going on right now, uh, other than Russia, is actually the entire Western European area, right? So this this is the big question mark that I've been dealing with uh, since uh, the beginning of the war. Uh, I am absolutely on the minority with this statement. My ba you know the bottom line of this statement has been right from the beginning of the war that this war has not been only waged against Ukraine, but in fact Russia had a very strong interest, and I can explain why. I mean, from Russia's point of view, it makes perfect sense to launch this non-kinetic war targeting uh, actually the European security and economic order. Non-kinetic means obviously a war that is undeclared because it is being waged by non-military means. You target uh, certain dependencies. You know for a fact in advance how your enemy will react. Because 
We Europeans are like an open book, as I said, not only because our democratic societies are really uh, this, uh, as I said, uh, you know, box of chocolates, open box of chocolates. Everyone can, you know, take, uh, uh, open the box and take a chocolate. Uh, but uh, also, um, well, because we are quite predictable, um, given the limitations of our, of our approach. First critical component is that Europe was not able to prevent the war from happening. This is a hardcore conclusion. It really hurts, but this is a conclusion that, uh, you know, European political decision makers have to deal with. And if you take a look at the reactions coming from uh, various Western leaders, not, let's, let's focus on the Western leaders, right? Uh, they were quite wrong with the diagnosis, with their approach, and even now, with uh, to some extent, with the way how they are, you know, coping with the war. Uh, the diagnosis, um, the realization that they needed actually a geopolitical rapprochement with Russia prior to the war. I mean, many forget that uh, countries like France and Germany were in a a very, very deep geopolitical approximation of the, you know, of the relations, of the bilateral relations with Russia. There was a strong conviction that uh, they needed Russia to actually cope with the rise of China in the global affairs. That was, you know, the, the, the bottom line. And if we take uh, a look what was happening uh, in the last, let's say, 20 years, 25 years, there has always been a Russia first policy uh, in, uh, the, in Western Europe and also in uh, the capital of uh, the European Union, Brussels. So all big European policies towards the Eastern neighborhood were first and foremost about Russia and then about the rest of the countries. How this, did this actually, you know, um, end up? Well, like I said, this rapprochement did not uh, prevent the war from happening. The whole, uh, the, the many hours of uh, phone calls, uh, the personal meetings ahead of the beginning of the war with Macron, with Merkel. Uh, previously, before that, the European Union top diplomat went to Moscow, was also humiliated uh, by Lavrov. Uh, it did not end well. I mean, it was a clear and strong signal that things were not going, you know, in the direction that uh, they were, you know, they, they wanted to shape things. Uh, so wrong diagnosis, wrong uh, perceptions about the realities. When you are this normative player, when you really only think of the way how you look at the world, and you don't understand your counterpart, you don't understand the calculus, you don't understand the rationale behind actions, you will end up by being punched in the face, uh, you know, by reality. And this is what happened on the 24th of February. The very fact that even now, as we speak, there are different understandings about how to approach Russia, but also how to approach China points to this, uh, what I was describing as bifurcation, growing bifurcation of Europe. Europe being fragmented and split, you know, split based on geopolitical and geoeconomic interests. 
um, you know, when it comes to the relations with uh, key players in the world, when it comes to the relations with the, you, you, with the United States on the one hand, and when it comes to the relations uh, with Russia and China on the other hand. And here, once again, we see that now countries like France and, uh, you know, and uh, Germany are shifting towards uh, geopolitical rapprochement with China. They called it, uh, you know, Brussels called it the risking economic and diplomatic de-risking because they don't like the word decoupling. Why they do not like the word decoupling? Because they don't want, uh, you know, to stop doing business with China. But at the very same time, they want to, you know, remain strategic partner of the United States. So geopolitical rapprochement with China in order to cope with Russia. So you see once again where the problem lies. The problem lies namely in the fact that they, that they will further enable, you know, China's rise because China needs to convert its geoeconomic cloud into geopolitical power projection. This is what China is now eager to do, especially given you know, the new circumstances. So going back to the wrong diagnosis, uh, not understanding of the realities, why is it important? Why did I claim that you know, it is in Russia's interest to uh, start a non-kinetic war? Because Russia, didn't see itself as a benefiter from this uh, economic and security order. It saw that, you know, European Union was successfully enlarging, has been successfully enlarging for the last two, uh, three decades. And there were more countries, uh, direct neighbors of uh, Russia, that wanted to join the European Union, wanted to become part of the European Union with the, you know, the most successful uh, story of it, which is to become part of the common market. Because once you become a common, you know, part of the common market, all the tariffs, everything, you know, goes down and you have a, a significant economic boost. Your society has to undergo reforms, has to democratize. You have a, a concept on which you build. You have the democratic, uh, you know, political uh, order. You have the free liberal market. And then you have, you know, society based on human rights and uh, freedoms. Uh, Russia cannot afford itself having this model, which is a counter model to the Russian model, next to its, uh, its border. And if, if I give you just one example, Poland and Ukraine were at the same level of economic uh, development just 30 years ago. 30 years ago, when Poland started entering the, you know, uh, applying for European Union membership, they were at the same level of development. Yeah, which was obvious, you know, think, uh, I mean, the one is, and the other have a similar, you know, size, scale, population number, and so on and so forth. Uh, meanwhile, you take a look at where Poland is and where is Ukraine. So imagine to have such a winning formula from UK, Ukrainian's point of view, uh, and this is next to the border of Russia. It's impossible to allow it. You know, that is the, the Russian calculus. It is, it is um, you know, the main, of course, goal is still to prevent this enlargement, uh, which, you know, has been described by Moscow as expansion. But expansion, you need to understand that in geopolitical terms, expansion means that you need, you need military means to apply military means to actually expand territorially. And this is what Russia is doing right now. This is the push to expand, you know, Russia, to take away actually the whole of uh, Ukraine, to subjugate Ukraine. And by doing so, 
And here we arrive at this non-kinetic. You practically destroy automatically the security architecture from the last 30 years because you have, cert you have suddenly a new geopolitical uh, reality. You have a geopolitical bloc. Ukraine is part of Russia. Then you have a union with Belarus. You place nukes, uh, you know, on Belarusian soil. And there you go. You have a very different, uh, you know, demographic, economic model. And you have a very different uh, uh, regional power projection. So all of this, of course, will lead also to new uh, economic realities. And then you pointed out, uh, of course, uh, in democratic uh, societies, uh, it is up to a government to run for the next election. So everyone is a candidate for the next election. We saw that already with some of uh, the European Union members that uh, they, uh, you know, even though that they actually reflected on the interests of their own population, like it was the case with, uh, you know, with Finland, uh, the prime minister was not re-elected. <laughs> after, you know, after she was very, very, uh, you know, strong uh, in terms of uh, messaging, in terms of, uh, you know, communication. And uh, it was the Finnish population that wanted to actually, uh, for, for Finland to apply uh, for, uh, you know, NATO uh, membership. But still, did, this did not translate into a political um, result. That means that uh, she was not re-elected as a prime minister. And this is because... Every war is inflationary. Every war is inflationary. And Europe was already in a state of energy crisis before actually the war began. And the serious situation of commodities prices was already at place before the war began. So months before, we had already this precarious geoeconomic environment with commodities skyrocketing, so commodities prices skyrocketing, energy crisis looming on the old continent, all of these issues that I was uh, actually outlining for you. And then you suddenly have the decision on a full-scale war. You can imagine the scale, you know, you can imagine the effect of this decision on all the commodities prices and how actually these dependencies, knowing for a fact how Europe will react, <laughs> will, uh, will play out. But there have been three, and this is the final remark, have been three major miscalculations by the Russian president. Even though that he could factor in a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, vi variables uh, correctly, there have been three major miscalculations. The first being the real um, cap cap capabilities and capacities of the Russian army uh, on the battlefield. The second being the will to fight uh, and the real capabilities of the Ukrainian army, which has been already in a state of war for the last eight years. Practically all of the Ukrainian troops have been already, you know, fighting against, uh, you know, the Russians uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and third point, the reaction of the West, because from Putin's point of view, he was expecting something similar to happen uh, as in 2014. Some kind of sanctions, a little bit being outraged, and then, um, you know, behind the curtains, the message would be, let's go back to business, because we have all of these dependencies in fossil fuels, in uh, food commodities, fertilizers, big issue. Um, let's go back to business. This was the message. This was the message after Georgia's war in 2008. This was the me message after the first invasion of uh, Ukraine. This was the message after, you know, uh, Russia uh, intervened militarily uh, in Syria 
against the Western interests. Let's go back to the business. And here, the big miscalculation was that this time, this is no, there is no coming back. But now, of course, we can debate that in the end, there will always be a possibility uh, you know, for coming back, depending on which political forces are going to regain, let's say, certain importance uh, thanks to elections. We have all of these players in countries like France, in countries like Germany. I gave you the example of Austria. So um, once again, it depends all on election cycles and we may end up here in Europe with political forces they, that will be eager uh, to, uh, let's say, stop the war by actually stopping the aid to, uh, to Ukraine and by closing up to Russia once again, as they did bef uh, you know, before in the past. Most of these countries, and specifically countries like France, uh, Germany, Austria, they have former ministers, former chancellors sitting in all these you know, uh, big boards of uh, Russian uh, state companies. So this is how you create uh, a leverage in uh, democratic societies, by buying up politicians, by buying up uh, interest groups, by uh, investing in NGOs, by penetrating society, um, suffocating the economic uh, vitality and infiltrating the political process of these uh, countries. Um, it is not up to Russia to not do it. Of course, it will ever, always try to do it. It is up to the Western, you know, uh, leaders to prepare their societies, to strengthen their institutions, to uh, well engage with political stakeholders, industries, and economies, uh, and mo most importantly, bureaucracies, and to create you know uh, strong uh, resilience, which is not happening for a moment. So we are going to we are not uh, you know uh, we are not beyond that. We are in the middle of the storm, and I argue that this uh, specific uh, season, this uh, second winter season, if we don't get the mild winter, which was another big miscalculation by, uh, by the Russian president, because he was betting, you know, on the winter uh, to accelerate these processes that I'm outlining for you. Um, if we don't get the mild winter, if uh, European uh, countries do not cut off, reduce uh, demand, uh, energy demand by another 15, maybe even 20 percent, uh, you know, this is just the calm before the storm. Fair enough. Then, listen, the interesting bit is like, what is the future course then? Before I, you know, take a few audience questions, like, where do we end? How, how long can Ukraine be sustained too? Because, I don't know, history has shown Russia has a lot of resilience. They tend to be a resilient society. Uh, I, you you cannot say you can't, your heart can't go out for the poor Ukrainians because the war is just pummeling them. And then uh, on on the other side, as you rightfully said, Western Europe, you know, commodity prices are a real thing. The cost of livelihood, uh, you know, living in in Western societies has hit the roof, proverbially. Uh, it, it's I mean, how long do you think, let's say, you know, you have an election happening in the United States of America. What if a Republican comes to power? The Republican is going to stop the aid to Ukraine then. So so where does uh, Ukraine go in all of this in the future? Do you, Or you think it's going to be a year and then electoral results are settled and then maybe we can finally come up to a conclusion? 
Oh, yes, I think that it's a war of attrition par excellence. It's going to last uh, for years, uh, certainly for years. And we will have uh, breaks, we will have ceasefires, we will have uh, rounds of negotiations. But uh, you name some of the variables, uh, some of the unknown unknowns, uh, where you see that um, there are more questions for the moment rather than answers. And without having these answers, you cannot really point to a clear scenario. What we know for a fact is currently the West is comprehensively supporting Ukraine with military aid, with financial aid, humanitarian, political one. We know that for a fact. That has been the most, you know, like I said, the most comprehensive support for the last um, uh, 400, uh, almost 30 days. Now, depending on the new realities, political realities, we may see some shifts, but uh, let's wait, for instance, let's wait for the Republicans first to win, because this is a major question mark, then let's wait for the Republicans to be faced by reality, because this is the next thing, when they have to actually, uh, this uh, bipartisan support for US policy towards China, and when they see for instance, that China is actively supporting Moscow. Uh, once they are witnessed with the realities on the grounds, which from US perspective are, you know, look very differently from what I've been describing from Europe's point of view. And that is that America by no means wants to be engaged in a, uh, like, uh, like I would say, dual front scenario having to uh, support ukraine for a long uh, for a long run having to you know uh, remain militarily engaged on the old continent while preparing for the big competition with china in the indo-pacific this is no go this is not the scenario america wants which is why we saw this actually this very strong uh, response from biden's administration surprisingly by the way nobody was expecting that and by the way we saw also a very strong uh, very strong i would uh, argue I myself was very surprised by that um, uh, response to China unexpectedly. So on the other hand, uh, of course, we, we've uh, covered a little bit the West, uh, a lot of question marks here. Um, I think that the, big, the, biggest, uh, the biggest breakthrough should be for the European powers to say that not only do they support uh, Ukraine, to win the war, but they support Ukraine to regain its sovereignty and territorial integrity per uh, internationally recognized borders from 1991. These are the borders that Russia actually recognized. The 1991 borders. So here you have the next big question mark, and that is Crimea, because from Russia's point of view, Crimea is the absolute threat line. Uh, from symbolic point of view, from psychological point of view, and obviously also from military point of view. And again, uh, if you take a look at the reports from the Ukrainian military intelligence, the ones you know that are being made public, uh, the interviews, Ukrainian military intelligence is convinced that they actually that Ukraine can uh, regain Crimea. Big question mark. Is it going to be tolerated? What will be the Russian response? Um, the issue of the nuclear blackmail, the issue of the threat of the use of tactical nuclear weapons. There you go, right? Um, and then a final remark, it will be also, I think, very important what the long-term stance of China will be. I mean, we know for a fact 
from geopolitical point of view, China cannot afford itself the emergence of three front scenarios. So you have the military escalation in the Strait of Taiwan, you have the military tensions with India along the line of control, and these military tensions are destined to grow, unfortunately, because of the re-emergence of India as an economic power, uh, with a lot of economic growth, a lot of deviation of uh, you know, capital, uh, supply chains towards India away from China. I mean, this is just, you know, the recipe for, for a, let's say, a big political clash, geopolitical clash that will result in some kind of military tensions. Um, and we have also the military buildup on both sides. Uh, and then imagine that under these circumstances, these are the current circumstances, uh, you have suddenly a security vacuum in the north of your border your longest border with Russia that has been, you know, demilitarized, uh, demarcated. So you don't have any issues with Russia. Uh, you need actually predictability. You need stability. This is what you need. And actually, uh, so long as things are, um, let's say, kept under control, in fact, you are uh, one of the winners of the war so long as Russia keeps the West busy on the old continent because you can prepare for you know, the big competition in the Indo-Pacific from China's point of view. So here, another variable will be if, uh, let's say, uh, Russia continues experiencing difficulties on the ground, uh, if China decides to start providing military aid to Moscow, because this will turn the, the, the war into a classic proxy war between two major systemic rivals, China, and the United States, both supporting two parties, two, you know, conflicting parties on the ground for years. You see, we have this kind of scenario. Uh, of course, there is still the possibility that a black swan kind of event happens, something really unpredictable that, for instance, leads to certain kind of chain of reactions that could, for instance, cause an economic explosion. For the moment, this is not realistic because Russia relies on partners such as India, such as China, such as UAE, Turkey. So there is no way how Russia can be internationally isolated in terms of trade and in terms of uh, e economy or even currency. But then again, something unpredictable can always happen. Right, uh, we have uh, a lot of rumors once again, even through the leaked Pentagon documents, where we, you know, we've seen some information about the health of uh, the health issues of the Russian president. Uh, this would not be a black swan because obviously it's being expected by many, but it is something that obviously uh, is on the agenda can happen. Uh, what would mean? What would this kind of event mean for the system? How will the system in the Kremlin? keep itself afloat? How will it accommodate with the different actors, be it the military, be it the oligarchs, be it Western partners, and so on? Then again, the variable of the European uh, economic order, if things uh, continue you know, being in a perma crisis, permanent crisis, what will be the political effect of it? What will be the outcome of it? And how will this actually affect the decision-making on Ukraine? So the moment when we know for a fact, as of today, if Russia now decides to stop the war, nothing will happen. You know, the, the war will be over. There will be no consequences, more or less, for Russia. But if Ukraine stops the war now, like it says, 
for any, you know, for any particular reasons, for most of which would be that there is no military aid anymore. Then Ukraine will be subjugated. There will be no way, you know, if Ukraine cannot fight, uh, cannot further fight, that there is no way how, you know, Ukraine would sustain the Russian attacks, that Ukraine would be able, you know, to, uh, to, to further exist, at least in those territories that are already under Russian control. And I would argue that Russia then will make a move to seize more territories. Fair enough. Now let's let's get um, into the viewer questions. I'll first, there are two, three portals I have to look at. So I'll first look at Patreon. So on Patreon, somebody has started uh, with this question. So what do you make of Finland and Sweden? I think Finland has joined NATO officially, right? Finland has already joined uh, uh, NATO. There is a decision uh, to join and has joined officially. Um, and uh, Sweden awaits uh, the decision by uh, Turkey and uh, Hungary. Uh, and the decision by Turkey is more, you know, you know is politically um, complicated. But in fact, I argue that it has uh, a lot to do with the election. So the moment when the election will be over in Turkey, and this is going to happen in May. I think that this will be solved as well. So Sweden and Finland will be fixed members of NATO. And this is for you another example about Russian narrative, because Russia used the narrative. The Russian president uh, stated on television in his first public statement that, uh, you know, he launches this uh, limited mil military operation to prevent NATO expansion. And in reality, uh, two neutral countries for the last, you know, 200 years, respectively, since the end of uh, the Second World War, decided. So it was not the government, it was not the political parties, it was the population in these countries that pushed their governments for a membership. And in fact, by launching this full-scale war, Putin actually accelerated the process. He gave, uh, it, he gave new meaning to NATO as a collective defense uh, alliance, um, a meaning that went from being a brain dead, as stated by the same French president, Macron, a few years ago, to becoming even bigger organization. And I argue personally that Ukraine was invaded not because it was striving for NATO membership, but it actually because it was not a member of NATO. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of agree with that point of view. And, uh, well, you know, they called the uh, Russian bluff. Uh, I think well, didn't Putin say that, oh, if these two countries join NATO, I'll consider it as a act of aggression or something. Well, nothing. Boo, yeah. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. Is all I can say. I mean, like I said, I got, uh, you know, I got my money on no one in this fight. I could care less. I just look at all this and I was like, my gas prices are high. Do something about it. That's all I get. That's, that's how I look at it. Just a common man's perspective. All right. So somebody has asked a very specific person, if a uh, question, if right to protect could be invoked in Bosnia and Kosovo, why can't Russia invoke that same concept to protect civilians in the Donbass uh, bracket, over 14,000 killed between the 2014 annexation of Crimea and the 2022 start of the war. And protect whom exactly? Uh, millions of displaced persons, millions, millions of people, millions of people actually fled 
from this, uh, you know, from Donetsk and Luhansk when, you know, uh, the first invasion happened in 2014. Millions of refugees fled to Europe or went to other parts of Ukraine. Protect whom exactly? Imposing Russian passports on a sovereign territory? Like imagine that tomorrow there is, a, you know, that China decides to, you know, start, decides to launch uh, Chinese passports in, um, in, uh, in the China's controlled uh, part of uh, Kashmir. Right to protect, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, here the thing is that, um, the thing is that um, uh, we should refrain from uh, generalizations in a sense that there is a lot of whataboutism. What about what United States did? Yes, uh, what United States did has been reported and reflected on thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. You can go everywhere, you can comment everywhere about what these people did or not did, right? Did any of these territories go to the United States? Part, I mean, did United States seize these territories? Just as an, you know, as an example. Um, all of these things can be critically, critically, you know, um, dealt with. Uh, people lost their jobs, people lost elections, and so on and so forth. People went publicly and started apologizing for the big mistakes they did. Um, Europeans were very much against it. Remember how many millions, millions of people went to protest against the Iraq war, against Afghanistan, and so on and so forth. So a lot of these processes are being actually still processed. And you have plenty of material to do so. Now imagine, like I said, imagine going to Russia and, uh, you know, criticizing uh, how Russia is conducting uh, the so-called military operation, special military operation. Or imagine going there and saying, you know, that this is a war. Or imagine going, you know, to Xinjiang, for instance, and saying, or Tibet and saying, you know, uh, something about the rights of the minorities there. You understand that this is a big difference. You don't have any transparency. Nothing is going to happen even after the war. What actually happened in the last, uh, you know, eight years on behalf of Russia, you know, how many of these uh, leaders, so-called leaders that were, you know, uh, put in place, are long dead. They have been terminated. They are no longer, you know, alive. Uh, you don't have any information, any way of dealing with these things. Fair enough. Now let us get into the next question. I'm just asking whatever the viewers have uh, mentioned over here. Um, what do you make of the nationalism uh, when it comes to Russia, even after the Cold War and... Um, in this entire process, like, well, are there any surveys done as to do average Russians actually support the war? I mean, well, actually, how can you do the survey? They won't allow it to happen over there. And um, would the EU slash West and Russian relations ever improve after this entire, what word do I use, mess? Yes. I was being polite from... by calling it a mess. Starting from behind, yes, there will be a reconciliation process. There will be a process of uh, approximation between Europe and Russia, between Ukraine and uh, Russia once Ukraine wins. It will be for the good of the Russian people. Just take a look. Meanwhile, there are channels 
which provides you with the information, if you have the patience and if you have really the guts to follow this uh, TV uh, discussions uh, every evening, uh, there are meanwhile translations in English and they translate, they make it public for people around the world to really follow what the public discussions or first channel, second channel are about every single evening. What kind of propaganda you are fed with, you know, every day. So it is, um, how to say, uh, it is a very different information environment, information flow, and this is not new. It has been actually known from the time of the communism, from the time of uh, the Soviet Union. Controlling the information flows is critically important. And this is something that Russia has mastered. And by the way, China has been copy-pasting a lot with the help of the new technologies. This is, if you, if you have a population, a lot of which actually doesn't live in the cities, lives in these remote places, uh, Russia being the largest country in the world, right? And you have only this first channel or only two channels of information. How do you think that you actually built yourself a picture about what's going on? you know, in the world, what's going, what's happening in Russia. I mean, think about how uh, Russian young soldiers were entering the Ukrainian villages, small villages, and were shocked by what they found there, like washing machine. For instance, they were like when they were entering, you know, uh, these places of civilians and they were finding, you know, technical equipment like laptops of some, some things that they didn't even know how to, you know, work with. These kind of things are realities. Uh, the Once again, the discrepancy in the economic development alone from the last eight to ten years, uh, specifically when it comes to urban versus, you know, village development, is significant, significant. And you understand that... Uh, and you need to understand that a lot of Russians are proud, are proud of their president that he is now waging this war. Because it is in the Russian DNA to be expansionist. Russian empire has been always an expansionist power. And I argue that this is a reality that we need to accept and we, we have to deal with it. So we will deal with Russia from the position of strength. This is how we will deal with Russia. We cannot ignore a neighbor who is there uh, and will be always, you know, uh, in our direct vicinity. But we can deal with the neighbor from the position of strength. This is the only way, because Russia only accepts uh, force and strength. This is how you can actually be on par with, 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 with Moscow. So here, I think that you need to understand that, and this is at least my assessment, my geopolitical assessment, is that this war has been the final desperate push for a geopolitical relevance from Russian point of view as a dying empire, you know, as an empire that hasn't been able to uh, adapt to the new realities economically, um, in societal terms, you know, hasn't adapted its society, hasn't adapted its army, hasn't adapted, you know, its economy to the new realities, to the new comple uh, complexities of the world. And is still, you know, applying the same mindset while expecting different outcomes. 
So at the same time, you know, you see when you have invested, when you have actually restructured, when you have decentralized, when you have actually different kind of governance, different kind of economic uh, uh, development, uh, different kind of uh, societal, uh, societal contract, as it is the case with Ukraine, you see that this can be a winning formula. And of course, you're fighting for your own survival. You're fighting, actually, you have the will to fight because it's really about, it's a matter of everything. You have only two options. You have the option of war or you have the option of subjugation. You will be subjugated. You will, be, you will become part of something that is Russia, that is called Russia, and it's not going to be called Soviet Union or, you know, Union States. Uh, this time, it's going to be really about Russia, reviving the Russian imperialist project, not reviving the Soviet Union, with autonomous republics, with their languages, with their autonomous uh, governance. No, no. This time it's really about all in. Um, having Belarus, uh, Ukraine, and in the next stage, if successful, also getting, you know, incorporating other parts of Eastern European countries, from Georgia, from Moldova, into this bigger Russia. Why bigger Russia? Because for Russia, size matters. Russia needs to reestablish regional you know, power projection, given the new systemic conflict between United States and uh, China, given these new realities, Russia sees itself as a front runner. It has to get the pole position in this systemic conflict. It has to become this indispensable power between these two systemic rivals. And every of the two systemic rivals needs to respect Russia for that matter, because it is becoming a wild card. If China sides with Russia, it will have, you know, a let's say the upper hand, if United States accommodate with Russia, like it did with China in the 70s, it will have an upper hand over China. You see, this is the play. Uh, the long game is not about uh, Ukraine. Ukraine is just the vehicle. Ukraine is the necessary, you know, condition. But, uh, you know, sufficient condition is actually for Russia to reemerge as this, you know, powerful imperial project that has its own its own sphere of influence on the old continent that, that destroys the security order in Europe, creates a chaos, creates a new concert of powers, and accommodates with those powers, like in the Western Europe, that are Russia-friendly and will be you know, eager to go back to business. So then from the Russian perspective, this war, it strengthens whom? Uh, the intelligence security apparatus, like or Silovic faction, who 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 gains in their idea, like after like who gets in the pole position? They do, or Putin does, or all of them do. Who does? Well, from my point of view, this war has been uh, launched by the system itself. The core of, you know, the Russian state is not, uh, you know, is not about oligarchs or about the Russian Duma or about, you know, Russian parliamentarians or, you know, whatever kind of, mo you know, mo model of governance you have. It's not about representation of people. It's really about this core that, you know, took over uh, in the last uh, three three decades uh, after the collapse. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the two major components that remained intact was the international Comintern. I mean, the influence of Russia uh, through various channels and various, you know, um, networks around the world um, based on ideological component because it was about the Marxism, Marxism-Leninism. Marxism it was about the ideologi ideological competition with, uh, with the United States. 
but it was based very much on anti-imperialist and anti-American sentiments. And this is something that, you know, they kept and they revived successfully. And the second uh, important component that remained intact was the uh, security apparatus. And the security apparatus slowly but surely took over. So in my view, Putin is just the facade of this system. And if the, the system decides to that it needs to get rid of Putin, for the sake of its own survival, it will do it. If it has to sacrifice Putin in order to accommodate with the West, let's say, depending on how, you know, how long Russia will be failing through uh, in this process of uh, war against Ukraine, it will do it. And you need to understand that you don't need a face. You need only to understand the mechanics of the system. And the mechanics of the system is you have a security uh, you know, slash intelligence apparatus that has these strong sentiments about, you know, the lost power of the Soviet Union, despised, you know, of course, the uh, the, the Communist Party for, uh, you know, for, uh, and specifically Gorbachev as, uh, you know, as Russian president for actually for giving up on, on, on the Soviet Union and is really eager to regain this, as I said, at least regional power projection, understanding very well that Russia has lost its global power status. But Russia can be, as I said, if it is successful in this war against Ukraine, can have the same, can have a pole position, can be a front runner, a geopolitical front runner, uh, can be a wild card in new geopolitical constellations. And this is, I think, the game. I mean, this is something that they cannot do without actually uh, having Ukraine as part of, uh, of the Russian territory. That's why I'm saying the, 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 the last... Uh, old men of Europe, right? If you, if you remember the story about uh, the Ottoman Empire, how long it took for the Ottoman Empire to actually, uh, well, collapse, um, ultimately, ultimately collapse. Uh, this is now our uh, dying men of Europe, the Russian Empire as the modus operandi. Uh, and uh, so long as this system at the core of it is still, you know, being kept afloat, which is the case, I don't think that the Russian people and, you know, the Russian state have any chance, you know, of any kind of uh, moving forward. And it's going to be a, a, a perpetual, a perpetual uh, kind of uh, modus uh, vivendi of, uh, of, of going into war, you know, having talks and then going into war, having talks and go going into war. So this is, I think, the most uh, dramatic, the most tragic thing, actually, of, 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 of the Russian development over the last 30 years. And you should not equalize it with, you know, with the Russian people. I mean, there have been journalists <laughs> who have been trying uh, to, and, and intellectuals and, and oppositional leaders who have been trying to fight against it and you you know how it ended every time so what do you make of the whole sanctions on russia do you think the russian oligarchs have managed to wiggle out of the sanctions successfully um in your view i think that meanwhile russia has a lot of dangerous windows if you understand what i mean Fair and enough. I think that the message the message has arrived where it had to arrive because a lot of these you know oligarchs, CEOs or whatever, I think they got the message. Fair enough. 
fair enough all right so there was um i i do not understand this question i'm just reading it out i don't understand is there any western indifference towards the war i don't think so the west is indifferent to the war at i think everybody is pretty much uh, keyed in the war um i i i the way i understand it is actually maybe whether you know people do not uh, whether there is not kind of a fatigue right fatigue where people want to move on right this is a dangerous kind of state where you know people get used to the war they no longer want to listen about it they don't want this war to be covered and they want to move on and this is also part of the you know of the democratic process um where you know citizens in the western countries most of the polls are actually showing that there is an overwhelming support from the citizens in all western countries for ukraine uh, once again i'm pointing to different trends i'm pointing to different you know realities to different scenarios but for the moment let's be very clear that there is a very strong support from also from the citizens in the european countries uh, when it comes to you know ukraine a lot of refugees are still uh, in uh, the western countries um and uh, a lot of uh, humanitarian help has been also provided but maybe the question goes more into the direction second winter if second winter comes if this like i said uh, winter is tough it's not mild uh, winter that we had uh, last year um and coupled with fatigue coupled with you know uh, domestic problems domestic issues tackling the repercussions uh, like i said so a lot of this perma crisis a lot of these issues have been already ongoing before the war began the war accelerated them and amplified them and how you know political leaders will be fighting with this i think that the only way forward is by being honest with the population being transparent about what is really happening and what is not happening like in both directions not promising anything that is not realistic at the same time communicating explaining things like i'm trying to explain things um on a regular basis uh, not you know um providing only the one side providing both sides what is the one trying to achieve what is the other trying to achieve i mean you need to understand that there is a zero interest on behalf of ukraine to take any any russian territory think about it not a single village not a single millimeter and at the very time and the very same time we talk about the second largest european country <laughs> the second largest even now as we speak the 17% are more than the territory of austria and switzerland this is not a small part this is not just you know a minor piece of a piece of uh, you know of land and uh, take take a look at what uh, indian for instance troops are doing you know the unimaginable at these high altitudes to defend their own territory when it comes to you know the clashes with chinese troops the unimaginable right so they are eager to do and defend every millimeter so how should we expect and or let's say tell a country to not defend its territory so it is going to be in the end it is going to be a war between the wills of two people of the russian and the ukrainian to continue the war because if one of the you know uh, unfortunately like in most of the wars it will be about capitulation it will be the about the inability to you know continue fighting it will be the, about the will to continue fighting so in a sense i think that 
uh, this is going to be decided by this, you know, by Russia and Ukraine. But the fatigue is something that we need to be aware of it. We need to be vigilant about this, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, accompanying, accompanying effects and symptoms. Fair enough. So you did mention India. Let's end with a question of India. So uh, obviously, it's a simplistic uh, uh, analysis, I think, to begin with, that um, why is not India not coming with the Western democracies and supporting authoritarians like Russia? Well, India is not supporting Russia. India is not supporting Ukraine. India is basically doing what uh, I think the Indian foreign minister has been uh, very clear on this and the next part of the question is why do so many Indians support Putin actually I have not seen any survey that points to that Indians don't think like I'll see Putin I see Zelensky Indians don't even care um, the Indians only look at Indian interests and uh, to to be very accurate over here is uh, India has its own geopolitical history. Uh, nobody has forgotten what happened in the 70s where the Americans did what? I mean, to, to famously quote Henry Kissinger, uh, um, what, did, what did he say? It may be dangerous to be America's friend, America's friend, but to be America's, uh, America's enemy, but to be America's friend is fatal. <laughs> I'm just quoting Henry Kissinger here, nobody else, but India has a history with America. But uh, as far as I understand, Indian-American relations have been at its best right now in terms of trade, in terms of many things. I think India is also dealing very well with the Western European nations, but India is not going to stop its relations with Russia. I know a lot of uh, questions come towards India on on on, uh, on the on the question of, oh, why are you buying Russian oil? Well, you know, the Europeans are buying processed Russian oil from us too. So if, <laughs> if you're going to ask us that question, why not ask? So the Europeans basically have increased their costs. So it's like, you know, they're not holding their nose like this, but they're holding it like this. But it's the same thing. But what do you make of this entire shenanigan with India? Every time is like chided like a little child. Why are you doing this to me? So we need another podcast alone for this. <laughs> alone for this. <laughs> <laughs> for this topic, <laughs> because it's a big topic. And uh, in my uh, scenario assessment ahead of the beginning of the war, because I was already ready with my uh, risk uh, and scenario assessment in December 2021, uh, where I had the international dimension, I had the regional dimension, as I tried to explain it in a very, very obviously very short uh, period of time and then the national level right so in the regarding the international arena the global arena of competition and cooperation here i was perfectly clear what uh, india's positioning will be and that is as you pointed out uh, very much oriented uh, and centered around uh, Indian uh, national interests. Now, first and foremost, uh, meanwhile, India already overtook uh, China in terms of population. It is about feeding and providing for the own population. That's it. If you have to feed, meanwhile, one point or almost 1.5 billion people, everything that you will decide as a government, as a federal government, will be actually derived from this, you know, ultimate goal. If you have like 9 million people and you are part of a trade block with a common market, you obviously have more options, right? So this is the first thing. Uh, second thing, and in here, why is it important? Because Russia is a primal, primal source of fertilizers for India. India being the, uh, the, the for instance, the biggest producer of wheat in the world, um, you know, producer of commodities, 
uh, you need these fertilizers and you will get them from from Russia. This is, you know, you have a you have a solid and predictable source for that. Second important issue, you mentioned that as well. Uh, it is, of course, a lot about geopolitics. You have relied on the Soviet support and the Russian support for your stance on the Kashmir issue. You need a clear voice within the UN Security Council and you need, you know, a like I said, pr uh, predictable uh, uh, support, uh, diplomatic support, geopolitical support on that issue. And this is something that Russia has provided in the past and will provide for you. Um, now, obviously, this is a factor, it's a variable. It's not, you know, it should not be the most decisive one, but it's a variable. And knowing how, you know, the West has supported the, uh, Pakistan in the past, specifically the strategic partnership between the United States and uh, Pakistan, of course, you will be very cautious uh, when it comes to the, uh, the, the rapprochement now coming from United States and from European powers towards uh, India. You know, this charm offensive now coming from, uh, from the West, which is understandable. It has, of course, objective reasons, not only subjective ones. Like I said, India is projected to become world's economic power number three, probably even in this decade. Uh, contrary to China has a very optimistic demographic uh, scenario. Uh, a lot of uh, labor force, uh, young population is very, very well positioned in the fourth industrial revolution with the whole digitalization is the country with the, with the most digital transactions already in the world. And in fact, United States needs India more uh, to cope with China than India needs United States to deal with China in military terms. That is the reality. So uh, for the upcoming uh, systemic competition in the Indo-Pacific, India, which contrary to uh, you know European Union and the European powers, is already a security provider, is already a security player, and that means automatically a geopolitical player in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we are struggling to send one frigate uh, or one ship, and uh, except for France and uh, UK, we almost don't have any, you know, uh, ex any exposure, maritime exposure uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and that means, of course, that the United States will forge new partnerships that cannot bypass India. And we see that already with the Quad, with, uh, with, with uh, you know, AUKUS Plus. Now Japan is considering, you know, to, to enter this, uh, this kind of format or at least to facilitate uh, a kind of cooperation. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, India also finds uh, a kind of format of cooperation with the AUKUS, with uh, UK, uh, Australia and uh, United States as a defense and security pact. So this, of course, comes to show that uh, there are tectonic geopolitical shifts uh, and uh, India is emerging as a third pole, if you like. Uh, it has this traditional non-aligned uh, policy. Uh, this time, I think that it's going to be much more difficult for India being a solid geoeconomic player to actually refrain from alignments, but it will be very cautious. Uh, and I argue that it will be uh, positioned in between, because you see that it is very active when it comes to uh, China-led formats, such as Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And this is the right thing to do, by the way, to be there, to be part of the discussions, to listen what is being discussed, to understand the national interests and the rationale, specifically from China, um, but also BRICS. And uh, also here, once again, you have Russia as a kind of a glue, geopolitical glue between India and China, because both need Russia 
as a hedge against the other. I mean, the Chinese need Russia as a hedge against the Indians, and the Indians need Russia as a hedge against, uh, you know, the Chinese in regional dynamics. Okay, so here once again you see that uh, India is going to uh, bet on India. It's going to really make sure that it has the economic stability, it has uh, as much of um, of a regional security as possible. So it will be really eager to actually not get militarily involved in any big confrontations, so be it with Pakistan or China, but will be more realistic, more pragmatic about it because right now economic comes first, security comes second from, from India's point of view. And at the very same time, um, India's diplomatic uh, portfolio will be further boosted because it has, uh, you know, a bigger role to play within the Global South. Now, I mean, uh, currently it is also chairing the G20. It has uh, hosted a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the ministers, ministers uh, from these countries uh, at home. The big summit is coming uh, in September uh, and it will be organized by New Delhi. So big, big diplomatic portfolio, bigger role uh, you know, in the world, a bigger role specifically in Africa, Eastern territories of Africa, Indo-Pacific nations. At the very same time, the European Union will also start charming offensive with the FTA, with the free trade uh, agreement. And I think that this is a smart way and this is a good thing for India as well to deregulate a little bit, to allow actually Indian labor force to enter the common market, to start actually also capitalize, uh, capitalizing on, you know, uh, geoeconomic uh, relationship with the US, with the European powers. Uh, it is a lot about capacity building, a lot about, you know, uh, things that will be in the making, will be really, really flourishing in this, the next decade, you know, a lot of sectors are going to undergo a development. And uh, once again, I mean, it's uh, it's very nuanced. You cannot have a, a you know, um, an ultimate uh, reply which points to only one direction. And in the case of of India, it's going to be a very very kind of classic oscillation between blocks, between uh, two blocks building. Uh, the the world is being fragmented, increasingly fragmented between two blocks: the dragon bear on the one hand, United States, the West. On the other, and India, I see India in between, depending on the success, uh, the scale, the speed of its development, first and foremost, economic, technological, digital one, and then, of course, accompanied by uh, strength and enhanced military portfolio. Uh, that means, of course, uh, also boots on the ground. Uh, India is already participating in a lot of UN missions, and it, like I said, doesn't need the West to fight its wars if necessary. But in a sense, maybe the good story here is to be also a little bit more pragmatic and freed from um, ideological, ideological um, frameworks because normalization of relations with Pakistan is a, such an example. If you create more trade, you know, interdependence, if you actually start working on that channels, you can prevent certain terrorist attacks from happening. You can actually uh, reduce the number of terrorist attacks. You can uh, you can provide for more stability and more predictability in the relationship while actually preparing for the big competition with, you know, with a regional rival, which is uh, obviously the, chi the Chinese case. Uh, so, yeah, once again, why are Indians actually fond of Putin? Uh, I think is a question for Indians to answer, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, take a look at some of the you know provinces, uh, you know the states of uh, of, of um, India, where you still have a very strong you know 
uh, Marxist roots. You have, uh, uh, <laughs> you still have uh, um, certain uh, regional leaders with quite of a big, uh, you know, big, um, let's say, leverage in influence. And uh, well, the Marxist ideas have been successfully spread to uh, to India during the time of the partnership with the Soviet Union. Like I said, this was also very much on purpose. And the Soviet Union has really provided a lot uh, and helped a lot <laughs> for this to get also disseminated. And I wouldn't be surprised that there are certain sentiments that have also ideological roots, which is understandable. I, I actually have a nuance for you. I, I have not seen any proper survey done in India on Putin. What the surveys asked Russia. So uh, even after the the war, I think there was uh, the Jan 19th report on Times of India, which was on a survey. Uh, Indians do view Russia as friendly. They, it doesn't mean they view Putin as friendly. They just view Russia as friendly. And India has always viewed Russia as friendly because at the end of the day, there is a historical context to it. Um, but at the same time, when asked out of the five players, right, uh, Russia, US, NATO, Ukraine, don't know. More Indians blame uh, Russia, 38%, than US, 26%, and NATO, 18%. I'm just quoting. This was the morning consult. Uh, the, that was the, the... Then Russia's popularity when the war started had plummeted, and then it kind of went back to its original position. Uh, it did not increase either. So that was there. And then when it comes to... Uh, you know, India's voting patterns in the UN resolution against Russia, India has consistently abstained uh, uh, in, in its voting style or voted against at times. And uh, six out of 10 Indians support that. But it doesn't translate into India's support for Putin as the person. It's, it's very different, Putin as a personality, and India and Indians look at their national interests. The Indian mind is very clear when it comes to these things. They have a very big memory about and in indians while they are very favorable to america now but i'll be very open at least the parents my parents generation they saw a very different america doing bad things to us during active times you're not going to expect them to have any favorable opinion in many occasions on many things because they've seen the average person i'm talking about the 70s where my father was a young man my father saw what the americans did by siding with pakistan so maybe if you even break it down by age you'll see young indians are not very pro-russia maybe the older ages i'll have to look at the numbers but there is literally no survey on the putin question and yes you are right kerala has a communist government bengal used to have a communist government and in india the indian academia especially the academia is completely hijacked, not by left of center thoughts, Marxist thoughts, proper Marxist thoughts. Indian academia is Marxist. It's not just left wing, which is pretty much the trend uh, the worldwide. I mean, I, again, I, there are surveys that say 90% to 95% of philosophy departments in America not, are, not only are left wing, they vote for the Democrats. I'm not the one making this up. Surveys in America say that. So uh, academia anyways is left wing. Indian academia is left wing on steroids. They're Marxist. So 
that's all I can say. But Melina, that's, uh, that's for the political scientists who are dealing with uh, this kind of uh, very interesting uh, phenomena within societies uh, uh, to to deal with and to you know comprehend and uh, like I said, these are processes uh, in you know that needs uh, a long uh, period of. Uh, let's say, reconciliation of dealing with, coping with, and uh, that is absolutely normal. And uh, you should not forget that in, geopoli in geopolitical terms, nothing is eternal. Nothing is internal. Neither absolutely. friends nor enemies. The only eternal thing in geopolitical terms is actually national interests. Whatever serves the national interest, this is what the government will do. This is, uh, th that's why I said also, once you are confronted with the reality, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, for instance, if you are sitting in Washington, you will be dealing differently from what you were promising. Same goes for European uh, countries, uh, same goes for uh, you know the Indian interest, same goes for China, for Russia, and so on and so forth. And uh, in a sense, if, you, we, if we understand the core of national interests and how they are actually um, creating the framework of decision making, we will be, let's say, more realistic about the options, about the scenarios, and also about the um, limitations of, 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 of certain actions. Yep. I, I, I kind of understand nothing is permanent in this world. Friendships, especially geopolitically, are always transactional. I, I say this very openly. Uh, I don't believe in the Western idea of a rules-based order. There is no such thing as a rules-based order, if you ask me. The world is transactional. India is never going to ruin its relations with the West, no matter what people think. <laughs> the Indian state is very clear. They want the West. They like the West. Average Indians don't have hostility to the West. I mean, you've visited India so many times, Zalina. Do you see any hostility when in your no, not at all. But how many Indians are queuing to go actually to live in China or Russia? This is the point, no right? <laughs> no and how many? How many? I mean, the biggest, the most successful diaspora is in the United States. The most, yeah. the the richest one. I mean, if take a look at the take a look at the table with the graphic with uh, the um, international diaspora living in United States. The richest one, the most successful story comes from the Indian one. And this is just the beginning of the story because yeah. once, you know, uh, you have uh, the opposite direction of capital flows and investments floating, you know, into uh, India because uh, there is a political backing. And the political backing, by the way, is very real. Very real. I mean, I've seen this myself, and I can assure you, it's just beginning. And it's not really. Um, it, it, I I think that it's going to be also one of the, uh, you know, bipartisan things uh, that we will see, no matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat uh, being uh, elected as a president. So, in a sense, um, uh, this is uh, what will, uh, you know, what will matter, in my view. Another example. Russia, and this is the final example, because we really <laughs> over, <laughs> we've really um, challenged the patience of uh, your viewers and listeners <laughs> by doing almost two hours of session. Nobody, this is a, this is criminal. Nobody is doing two hours uh, podcast uh, after two and a half years of pandemic, right? Um, but uh, for those who are still with us, uh, here is another example. Russia is the biggest arms sell arms sales provider for uh, India, over 50% still, right? And yet there is now this realization that this cannot go, go on like that because you cannot make yourself dependent on a sole 
supplier, be it arms, be it commodities, be it supply chains. This is the realization. This is actually already the realization in the Indian uh, government that India needs to diversify. So what we are going to see is diversification away from Russia, not because of, of let's say, <laughs> of because the relationship, the bilateral relationship will undergo a kind of deterioration, but because of the national interests of India to be diversified as a hedge plan, right? This is, this yep. is the case. I absolutely agree with you. And uh, Vilina, don't worry about it. We we can speak for a long time. So I have cultivated an audience that has a uh, that has a capacity for long form discussions. So uh, it it has always been a pleasure talking to you, Vilina. Uh, you know, you've been you've been going to Delhi too much. You need to come to my neck of the woods in Mumbai, and we need to sit down uh, sometime. So I'm going to hold you for this one. You you better come to Mumbai next time. You always go to Delhi and you go back. I look forward to invitations to uh, come to Mumbai, actually to coming to Mumbai, because this is uh, obviously, you know, being in Delhi is not everything is not, you know, telling you the whole story. Absolutely. I'm with you on this. And I hope that one day I will really, really uh, be able to maybe even this year. Why not? Uh, I'm open to any invitations. Yes. Uh, if you're in Mumbai, you're my guest. Dinner's on me. Deal. All right, Valina, thank you very much. Uh, as always, pleasure talking to you and looking forward to another good discussion with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right, guys, we'll wrap it up uh, in the description, whether you're watching this on YouTube or or Facebook, or you're listening to the audio version on Spotify, iTunes. I've left two links. You can follow Valina on social media, Twitter, and you can also go and check her website out. I think she still offers some specific courses in geopolitics, if I remember correctly from the last time. So you can go and check her website out. All the details are there. And as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Please like this video, subscribe to the channel, and if possible, leave a rating on the audio platforms also. Uh, support this podcast. This is a member-driven podcast. So if you can become a member on Patreon or Fanmo or on YouTube or buy the merchandise, I'll see you guys next time with another guest. Until then, namaste, take care. Bye. <music>